Well, hey, good morning. Good morning. Uh, yeah, this is a really good day. This is a really good Sunday to talk about um, uh, love and what that looks like. And so we got to just celebrate uh, marriage love. And so today I want to talk about a different kind of love, um, but also one that's very similar. And so to start, as we talk about uh, the royal rule, the golden rule, right, I think a lot of us grew up um, familiar with that idea. We, we learned it probably in one of two ways. And first, uh, it may have been taught to you as do unto others as you'd like to be treated. Um, the other way we often hear it uh, noted is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I'm sure that for those of us who those words are familiar to, this is basic stuff. We've heard it since we were kids over and over again. The problem is that I think many of us have never had the chance to really learn and appreciate what that rule really means. And so for those of us who grew up in the church, we know Matthew 7, that the golden rule, he says, it sums up all of the law and the prophets. And, and many of us know that Jesus quotes this law again in Luke chapter 10, right before telling the story of the Good Samaritan. And I'm sure many of us could find those stories very quickly in our Bibles. But my worry is that you, like me this week when I started, uh, would be hard-pressed to be able to find the origin of this rule in Scripture, like where it first comes from. And so I have to be honest with you all, for me, uh, this week, uh, the, the message was challenging. Um, there's probably going to be a deal of temptation uh, to deny some of the things I'm going to say this morning or to find new ways to interpret the text that I'm going to present. But I've made it my goal this morning uh, to make the implications of this text as impossible for us to avoid as they could be. And a goal of mine this morning is for us to realize that we're not as great as we think we are. I certainly um, had to come to that reality this week as I was studying. Uh, you guys already knew that. Um, but my final goal for us this morning is as we explore this golden rule that we see how great of a God we have and how great of a people he calls us to be. And so I have to tell you, I'm fully convinced after what I read this week that if we in this room began to live the lives that James, one of the texts we'll look at, calls us to, if we follow this royal rule, that we'll begin to experience the world in new ways, but more importantly, we'll actually be able to change this community. Like just us in this room will be able to change this community in ways that will echo into the future that God's promised to us, that, that future that we talked about for weeks. And so again, this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to explore the golden rule, the royal rule, and, and what it meant to those who first received it. And, and then I want to apply it to us today and see how we're living up. And then I want to envision with you what it would be like for us if we lived out this rule the way that Christ modeled to us and called us to do so. Okay, so that's our introduction. So with that, let's talk about the origins of the royal rule. All right, so before we get into the letter of uh, James, I want to take us all the way back to the formation of God's people. They're freed from Egypt in the desert. You guys will hear these kind of stories from me a lot because a lot of times in Scripture, this is where God takes us, right? Back to this origin of the people. And so, so right here, God's begun to give the people the law, and immediately they break it. And so Moses in anger breaks the tablets of the law that God just gave him. So God sends him back to make new tablets to rewrite all the things he written down before. So far, it's a great start to the story, right? 
And so as Moses is rewriting the laws that God had just given to him and his people, we find in chapter 19 the origin of this law, this rule. And so here it's, it's God relaying to Moses exactly what it means to be the people of God. That's what the law was for. And so it's really important stuff. And so in it, we find the description of what it looks like to be the image of God and a follower of God and the children of God. And so in chapter 19 of the book of Leviticus, God begins by reminding us of how holy and transcendent he is before using that as the reason for why we should fear and obey him and in so doing be holy like he's holy. And then he begins to explain what that looks like. And at this stage of the game, we learn that to be holy like he's holy means to love other, others the way we love ourselves and, and to take care of others who might not be able to take care of themselves. And so he begins to write in the law examples of what that looks like. And he makes them a law for the people to live by because it's significant. And so in verse 9 and 17, he tells them that when they harvest their crops, that they need to leave some for others to gather. And then he, he says, if you strip your vineyard bare, that's the equivalent of theft. And instead, to be generous and to leave food for others. And then he tells them that to take everything that they had that they believed was theirs and leave nothing for others would be to profane his name. And that's verse 9 through 17. And then he goes on to say that if you have someone work for you, that you should pay them their wages immediately, and it would be sin to withhold that from them. And he says that to withhold someone's wages is to disrespect and disregard his name. And then he says that you have a responsibility to the blind and the deaf and the sick and the lame. And then he goes on to say that if you do that, like if you live by these laws, you take care of these people, you give people what they're owed, you're generous to those around you, that that's what it means to have the fear of the Lord in action. And then he says that there should be no difference between how you treat the poor or the rich, but instead by righteousness you should judge a person and how you respond to them. And he concludes this section by saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so this is its origin, Leviticus 19, verse 18. Like, this is where it comes from. So he just summed up what it looks like to love your neighbor, and it's generosity with the things that are yours. And it's being honest with how you deal with people. And it's being impartial with how you deal with people. And it's care for those who can't care for themselves. And so this is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And we have here that our neighbors are both rich and poor, but he places an immense amount of responsibility on us to take care of one another. And so God says that to love and take care of these people is what it means to be his. And so as we continue through chapter 19, he goes on to expand this even more. And in verse 33, he says that when a stranger, someone we don't know, He's traveling with us in a foreign land. You shouldn't do them wrong. Instead, you should treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. There it is again. And he says you should do this because you know what it means to be a stranger. And he reminds us that we were 
or are strangers. But he rescued us from a hostile world and he welcomed us into his family and he prepared a home for us in his home. And he finishes this chapter off by saying that you shall observe all of these statutes and all of his rules again because he is the Lord. And that's verse 37. So hey, if you're anything like me, chapter 19 so far is really rough um, because if I'm being honest, I don't think it describes me very well. Um, I would be very surprised if my tombstone one day read Kyle Connect, lover of strangers. I'd be happy if it just said I did my best, right? But that's, but that's the goal. Like, This is the call. This is what we should all be known for and remembered for. This is what should be written on all of our tombstones as God's people because this is the thing that's supposed to define us and separate us from the world. This is what makes us holy like he's holy. But somehow at the same time that we're taught this rule, the golden rule, to love strangers as yourself, we're also being taught not to talk to them. And we're taught that they're dangerous or they deserve to be where they are or they made decisions that put them there and it's their fault. Or, or, or we're taught that if we're generous with them, they'll take our generosity and buy drugs with it. Something like that. We've all heard it. And so this morning, I'm not going to suggest that we teach our kids to trust everyone or to be unsafe, but I am going to say that at some point, we all need to grow up and realize that a rule that's prepared for five-year-olds to understand and to protect them isn't a rule for us to live by. We need to mature in our understanding of the world and understand that to tell our children to be safe is smart. But as adults, we gain responsibility, and God says one of those responsibilities is to take care of the fatherless and the poor, and the widow, and the orphan, and the blind, and the deaf, and the sick, and the lame. And so there's new rules for us to live by. And we all know what that's like to understand that there's rules for us when we're young, but there's rules for us when we're older. But I think many of us in this room are still living by those rules that our five-year-old brains could understand. See, according to the law, God provided for his people, not just in Leviticus, but in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and through the prophets and the New Testament and into the letters we'll read this morning, there's an immense amount of responsibility that God places on his people to provide for those who can't provide for themselves. And so in the culture that this law was originally written, we have to understand that if you were fatherless, an orphan, widow, cripple, blind, deaf, whatever it may be, the world was an increasingly dangerous and cruel place because you didn't have a patriarch to represent you. But what God does in these laws, because he's so good, what he says to these people is that he will be their father and he will be their advocate and he will be their provider and their protector. But then he turns to us and he says that we are his plan of provision and protection for those people. It's our job. But listen, we're not good at it. I'm not good at it. I'm really selfish and lazy and scared and skeptical. And so many times I let the lies that I tell myself prevent me from doing what God calls me to do and prevents me from being the child that he wants me to be. But listen, God says that's not an excuse. 
and he tells me to remember who I was, who's a stranger, who's broken, who can't fend for himself. And in that time, when he found me on that road that leads towards death, he rescued me, and he gave me what I needed, and he lifted me up, and he made me a home, and now he just calls me to do that for others, and it's a really big deal when I don't. See, in Exodus chapter 22, he says that if you wrong a stranger or you mistreat a widow or an orphan, and if they cry out, he'll hear them and his wrath will burn against you. And he goes further to say he'll make your wife a widow and he'll make your children an orphan. And then he goes on to say that if you mistreat a stranger, and you steal from them, or you treat them unjustly, and they cry out, he'll hear them and he'll stop listening to you because he's compassionate. So this is really important to him. And it's a really big part of who we are because it's a really big part of who he is. Are we having fun yet? So listen, the English word that sums up this kind of behavior or lifestyle, um, these laws, it's hospitality. Um, and it's a radically different way of thinking of hospitality than I've grown up thinking of hospitality. What I think of as entertaining guests is not the same thing as biblical hospitality because biblical hospitality requires you showing that same love that you'd show to family or friends when you invite them into your home to a stranger. And so it's different. And so in Hebrew, there's actually no one word for hospitality. Instead, what there is is just definition after definition, example after example of how to treat the stranger. And so from the Jewish perspective, um, they have a phrase. I'm not going to say it in Hebrew because it's, I don't, I'll mispronounce it. Um, but it's the concept of welcoming strangers. So that's what hospitality means to them. It's welcoming strangers, not family, not friends, strangers. And so as this week, this week as I looked at um, different articles to try and understand this concept of hospitality more, and I went online and looked on resources, um, over and over again what I found was uh, videos and cartoons and even a literal Sesame Street segment on the Jewish concept of hospitality because that's how fundamental and basic they want this to be for their people. So as we're teaching our children to not to talk to strangers and, and stranger danger, we have a whole people who take seriously the law of God and they're teaching their kids to pursue them and to welcome them and to do things to show them generosity and hospitality and love and care. And so that was really challenging for me that just like we teach our children to share, those who take seriously God's commands are teaching their children this biblical concept of hospitality. And, and so how challenging is this for us? I'm, I'm guilty so many times of avoiding people that I don't know or have different needs but are different than me. And so I had to ask, and I'm asking this to myself, but I'm also asking this to parents in the room or, or those listening at home. Listen, when, when there's a stranger on the side of the street with a sign who's asking for 10 seconds of your time and a few dollars from your wallet, man, what have you been teaching your children in the backseat? 
Or if you have a home that has more rooms in it than you need and you know there's somebody who's cold and needs a place to rest or lay their head, like how willing are you to give the same hospitality that God's given us? And with our finances, whether it's giving here or towards a mission that's pursuing the love of strangers, how much value have we communicated on that mission or goal? This hospitality that God calls us to, this golden rule that sums up all the law and teachings, it hinges upon how we treat those outside of our family and friends. And it calls us to treat them like our family and friends. And so the origin of this royal rule is found right at the core of what it means to God's people, to be God's people. Because God's love for strangers is the only reason that we're able to be part of his family. That's really important, that because God has a love for strangers, that's the only reason that we're able to be a part of his family, because he pursued us and he welcomed us in as if we were someone that we weren't. We were strangers, but he made us his children. So listen, this royal rule, it's foundational to the characteristics of God's people, and it's found all over scripture. And it goes into the letters like James. And so beginning in verse 19 of chapter 1, we get to see what he says about this rule and our relationship to it. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 19, he says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And he says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what it was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I just want to stop here for a moment and unpack this. So first, James calls us to meekness and humility to receive and listen to the word which has been implanted in us and makes us a new creation, the people of God. And he says that if we have that word, we have salvation. If it's implanted in us, we have salvation. But he goes further and says, if you have the word implanted in you, it will result in action. And it transforms us in the way we live. And then he warns that hearing isn't enough. Hearing the word is not the same thing as having it implanted in us in such a way that it transforms our lives. And so he warns that people can get this wrong. I don't want us to get this wrong. And he says that we can deceive ourselves into thinking we have the word because we've heard it and think we have salvation when we don't. And that's really scary, and that should cause us this morning to do some evaluation that James is calling us to do in our own lives to make sure we're not deceiving ourselves. But he also gives us confidence here because he says that if you can test yourself, if you're one who looks at the law and responds with that humility and a desire to do what it says, if you, you strive towards obedience, he says that you'll be blessed 
And he says that you know you've, you've not just read the law, but received it. But he says if you read the law and you come here every Sunday and you read your Bible every day and you pray every morning, but your life never looks different than it did before, he says you're like one who looks in the mirror and forgets who they are. And so in that, I think there's this plea for us as God's people to remember who we are. He's saying, remember, when you look in the mirror, walk away remembering what you just saw. But there's also that challenge in there to check yourself, to make sure you're not just a hearer of the word, but it's transformed your life and you're allowing it to transform your life because only those who have the word implanted in them are blessed and have salvation. Hearing is not the same as believing. And so he goes on and he says, he says, let me explain this some more. If you think, if anyone thinks his religion um, is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. But he says religion that's pure and undefiled, acceptable before God the Father is this, to visit the orphan and the widow in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James tells us that tradition, religious practice, it means nothing if it's not followed up and preceded by generosity and hospitality and love for those which God defines as strangers or neighbors. And this is challenging, especially as we're here this morning right now, but he's essentially saying that you can have Sunday services, that's good. You can sing your songs, you can pray your prayers, but if you don't care for the least of these, it's not acceptable to him. It's impure. And so these are really heavy words this morning. This isn't an easy pill for us to swallow or for me to share because it's really convicting. And who am I? But as we enter chapter 2 of James' letter, he gives really concrete examples of the things he's talking about. And he says, listen, if you're in assembly, if we're here this morning and we see somebody who looks like they have money and so we pay them attention and we give them prominence, but somebody walks in who's maybe a little less clean, maybe doesn't look like we look and we ignore them, he says we're putting his name to shame. And we don't understand what we've heard. And so he goes on to say that that's the exact kind of behavior that should make us question whether or not the word's implanted in us. And then in verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, If we would really fulfill the royal law according to scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show that partiality, you're committing sin and you're convicted of the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? And here's his answer. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
And so this is really challenging and it's really scary. And so I just want to be clear what I'm saying and what James is saying this morning and what he's not. He's not saying that we're saved by anything other than faith. He's not saying that works faith uh, save you. He is saying that if you have faith, it will transform your life. And if you say you have faith, but your life looks the same as before you met Christ, you may have met somebody else. And so I want us to hear this morning. And so Liberty Northeast, our faith, our religious acts, our time in prayer and scripture, in home meetings or at church, it means nothing to the Father if our lives aren't marked by the implanted word, if our lives aren't transformed. If we're not a people defined by our love for others, our faith is worthless and dead. It's the wrong faith. So he calls us to be not just hearers of the word who come every week and deceive ourselves, but be people who allow the word to transform our lives. And we put our faith in him. And he says, faith leads to obedience. Christ says himself that if you love me, obey my commands. So there's your test. Do you love him? Here's how you know. Are you obeying his commands? And so James and myself aren't bringing this up today as uncomfortable as it may be because we think it gives us the chance to shame anyone. It puts me to shame. But I'm sharing this this morning because James and I love you and recognize how far we all fall short of the standards of God and because we've seen the glimpse of the future that Christ has presented to us if we walk in his ways, because we know his ways lead to an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and perfect and waiting for us in that future to come. And see, James writes multiple times in this letter when he's calling people out that they're his brothers and sisters and beloveds. He calls them his beloveds because he loves them. And listen, I don't talk like that, but I love you. And I'm here this morning knowing that this message is really challenging. But James loves his readers, and he wants them to inherit that future that God's promised. So he gives tough love. Evan called it family talk last week. And so this week, James tells us that God's family is a family that not only welcomes the stranger, but pursues them and loves them and brings them into their homes and makes them family because that's what God's done for us. And because James loves his readers, he warns them that some of us might be deceiving ourselves because we claim to be part of that family, but we never joined the family business. And so here we are. This morning, and we've talked about the the origin of this royal rule, the golden rule of hospitality, and the series of commands that, that help us understand what this means, and it's how we treat those around us, especially strangers, and especially those who need our help, and especially the fatherless and the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sick, the lame, the hungry, the least of these. And we found out today that we're called to treat people and welcome people with this love because that's how we've been treated ourselves and it's fundamental to the characteristics of God and the family of God. And we found out that this is really important to him because it's really important to our understanding of who he is. And then we looked at James to evaluate how well we're living up to this and we found out that Kyle Connect is not. And James gave us this evaluation and he asked, listen, are you doing it at all? And if you are, you're doing well and you'll be blessed. And if not, you need to ask yourself, do you love the Lord? 
is the word implanted in you or you've just heard it and walked away forgetting everything, deceiving yourself. So here's our test, right? When we see somebody who's hungry, do we feed them? When we see someone with less, do we give them more? When we see someone who's cold, do we offer them a place that's warm? That's the evaluation. And so as we begin to wrap up, I'd like to just look at this more practically for us and envision what it would be like to strive towards being these kinds of people. And, and it doesn't have to be in extraordinary ways. I think a lot of us often look for the moment and in the process allow so many others to pass us by. It can start with holding the door for somebody and waiting a little extra long for them. It can start with when you see that person on the street, just asking the Lord, hey, is this one of those moments, Lord? What do you want me to do? And then in that moment, wrestling with your mind because you're gonna hear a lot of stories about what could happen or what danger there might be. And you have to work through your flesh to do what you know God calls us to because I think the answer is actually really clear. And you can look back to that story of the Good Samaritan or to the law and what he says happens if that person cries out because you didn't help them. It's a wrestle. I was talking to somebody else this week. I got phone calls from, uh, from somebody this week who uh, needed some help and I called them back and then I missed one of their calls and their next call accused me of being a liar and not the person I was. And I was really tempted not to call them back, but I said I would, so I did because I was working on this message and I had to preach to myself. And so I'm going to continue to pursue that person and give them the help that they're looking for because I believe that that's what God would have me do. And it's not easy. And sometimes it's frustrating. But I have to set that aside because, listen, if we were in God's shoes and he looked at all of us, he'd probably be frustrated sometimes. It would be really difficult. In fact, it was. It was really costly for Christ to give to us what he gave to us. And so that's our example, and that's the line. You know, when I graduated uh, college, like most of us who did so, I had no money. I was working at a daycare, making like maybe minimum wage. I couldn't afford an apartment. I couldn't afford an apartment with a roommate. I didn't know where I was going to live after graduation, but a friend of mine had parents in the area, and they heard about my situation. And so one night they invited me over for dinner, and then at the end of dinner they showed me a room in their house, and they said it was mine if I wanted. And so not only did they share a meal with me, but they shared their roof. And then not only did they share their roof, but they shared their family, and so there was always a seat at that table if I wanted. And in the year I lived with them, not only did I eat meals, but I was expected at family events. I opened presents with them on Christmas. I was there at the hospital when one of them was diagnosed with cancer. They adopted me into their family, and I was a stranger. So Scott and Karen understand what it means to show biblical hospitality. And that stuck with me. And so when I got a home and I knew people who didn't have a lot of money, I opened my home to them and then I got married and kicked them all out. <laughs> but then six months into my marriage, 
I had a, a friend who was more of an acquaintance at the time who was in a rough situation and he didn't know where he was going to be sleeping the next week and my wife and I talked and we invited him into our home. And so those first couple nights were kind of awkward. But 18 months later, he was family and we were able to see him come from a situation where he lost his home and some really important relationships to a point where he had found a new career and passion and he found a home that was his and he started a new relationship. And so I think this is what it looks like. And it's not easy and it is uncomfortable and it can be scary and it can be difficult. But I think this is what he calls us to. And then during this past year that was so difficult for many of us, I got to be a part of a group of people or see others give their stimulus checks away. I got to help take a woman and her children from a hotel room into an apartment. And I got to be the in-between for anonymous gifts to people in need. And it was so exciting. And I can list these things off because they're really important memories for me, but I think the challenge is that I shouldn't be able to list those things. It should be immeasurable because it should be my day to day. Because that's the kind of people that God's calling us to be. Because one day we'll dwell in a place where everyone around us will show that level of kindness and love without exception. But I want us to be those people now. And so listen, if you're a leader in this room this morning, passages like Titus 1.8 tell us that being a lover of good and holy and disciplined and a lover of strangers isn't just part of the job, it's part of the credentials. And so what that means is we shouldn't be doing that because of the position we're in. It means that we shouldn't be in that position at all if that's not how we live. That's really challenging. And for the rest of us, be encouraged that you have a God who loves you so much that while strangers and enemies, it's at that point that he'd love us enough to die for us and free us from the lives that we had to become his children. And so as I conclude, that should mean two things for us. These laws should mean two things for us. First, how wonderful would it be to enter the kingdom and have Christ say to us, well done, and be surprised because of all the things he says that we've done for him. And second, it should mean that when we meet that stranger or that person who needs something that we typically look down upon, that we should bow before them and be grateful to wash their feet or to help lift them out of whatever it may be because Christ says in those moments, it's him who's standing before us. What a different world it would be if we lived like people who believed that, that was true. So biblical hospitality, it's foundational to the characteristic of God and his people. And the love of strangers is something that we should constantly be evaluating ourselves against because it's the evidence of the word implanted in us. And finally, the love of strangers is something that Christ modeled to us so clearly as he ate with people who the world described as prostitutes and drunkards or sinners and so it shouldn't be difficult for us to understand what he's asking us to do when we see the life he lived and gave up for us. 
And how much better a world could it be? How much better community could we build right here in the Northeast if we made biblical hospitality the priority that all of us lived by and the priority that it is to God? So I'll be praying this week that God would give me eyes to see the needs that are around me and give me a heart which desires to engage with them instead of flee. And I'll also be praying that you join me in that. So let's start those prayers this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this royal rule. Thank you that you've lived it out without exception for me and us in this room and those who hear but don't do that that invitation is still open to them. Lord, I pray for us this morning that if we have deceived ourselves, that we'd look in the mirror today and your spirit would work in their lives as I'm praying, that they would see you and not walk away forgetful, and that they'd be transformed. And for those of us who are looking in the mirror, Lord, I pray that for those of us who have seen you and who know you, that we wouldn't forget either but that every day when we see people around us, we would see you and what you call us to, that we'd pursue them as if we're pursuing you the way you've pursued us, and that we would treat the stranger like family because you've treated the stranger like family. We ask these things in your name. Amen.